Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Brick Podcast. This is episode 253. My name is Byron. I'm here with my good buddies, Joe and Gary. Uh, One of us is known to leak a little bit when we get choked. We'll let that uh, figure out who that is. (laughs) We have an outstanding episode this week. We've got a a really neat off-the-mat lesson. We've got an an interview with Rafael Lovato Sr. Gary, what's happening? Hey, can you hold up real quick? Uh, i got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) I'm leaking a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Gary's the one. Yeah, it's better to arm bar Gary than it is to choke him. <laughs> oh, I'm good now, guys. Yeah, Thanks. Not much better. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we got a great episode, uh, jam packed. And I, I interviewing Rafael Lovato Sr. was one of those things that I've wanted to do for years, and I finally connected with him, and it was worth the wait. Um, he's he's such a, a wealth of knowledge, and he's just an open book as far as just really, really willing to just share what he has to offer as far as, you know, knowledge. And we talk about some fun things that are not jujitsu related and it's just fun to kind of learn about somebody uh, on and off the mat. So I uh, really enjoy the interview with Rafael Lovato senior. And that's coming up in a little bit. You know, it's crazy. The uh, team that uh, Rafael Lovato senior and junior and uh, Raider have done in Oklahoma city. Um, you know, you th- always think of the real dominating teams. You think they're either on the East or the West coast and, uh, it's just crazy in a, a little place like Oklahoma City, which is, uh, you know, just an hour and a half away from here. But, uh, man, those guys have just developed talent. And, uh, you know, it's from the top down. Uh, Lovato Sr. has uh, really, you know, built an incredible team there with incredible instructors. And they're just uh, some very, very good jiu-jitsu people. He does get into a bit of that, of, of the building uh, of, of the team and, and kind of a, a different backstory behind uh, Rafael Lovato Jr. Uh, from a different perspective. And it, uh, it it's just a, it's, it's a great story. And uh, he's got a, he's lived a pretty wild early life. And we'll, and we'll get out to the, the interview, but uh, he's, he considers himself uh, fortunate to be alive and have made it out of the situations he got himself into as a, as a young man or even, I don't know, a child. I don't know how old he was when he was kind of getting into, uh, you know, bad neighborhoods and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, just an amazing story that's that's coming up here in a few minutes. Uh, I have also a off the mat lesson, you guys, and uh, this is the the type of the sh- portion of the show. We'll talk about something not jujitsu related, and then drag it back onto the mats, or vice versa. If we learn something on the mats, we could take it to real life and, and pull it back the other way. Uh, but uh, in the interview with uh, Rafael Lovato Senior, we talk a bit about music, and he relates that to to some jujitsu stuff, and that's that's really. A neat thing and uh, I gotta say go to the website uh, there's a picture of him playing this giant uh, pipe organ it's really kind of neat uh, it's got more keyboards than I know how to count <laughs> but uh, one thing about music I uh, went to a uh, a concert that my cousin was putting on and I remember right before they started he took out like a little uh, what was it called a tuning fork Does that sound right and you hit it and it makes a little sound and then you get that sounds that. right. Yeah, like okay. First off, that's how much I know about music. 
uh, a basic tool. But he smacked it up like on his head, and he and he held it up, and then he started like that was the tune or the pitch or it kind of set him. And then he uh, shared that with the rest of the group. Like, here's what this note is. I don't know. I don't really know. But I was thinking about that for jujitsu. It seems like sometimes your best roles aren't your first role. They may not even be your second role. But after uh, you get going a little bit and you get warmed up and you get loosened up, uh, you really have a couple of those really good roles in there before you start to get tired and, and start to fade away that in that other direction. But I do think that there are some things we could do that is almost like tuning yourself before a match. And it could just be a way to, to get more excited or to, or to calm yourself down or whatever it is. And I think a lot of that we do with warming up, loosening up some stretches, and that's fine. But also, if you could do some sort of like cues, like if it's a certain set of stretches, or if you kind of jump you know, up and down a little bit, or if you listen to a certain song, and if you do this before you train at home, your body's kind of getting tuned before you step on the mat. And I think that so many times when people go and compete, they don't have any of those things. Like the things you do before uh, you go train at home, none of those things are there present uh, at tournaments. And if you could just maybe switch the things you do at home to things that are easier to copy uh, at a tournament, that would, that would be a beneficial thing to kind of tune you up before you want to perform and uh, perform well. Man, that's awesome, Byron. I've heard some uh, some practitioners that know a little bit more than I do talk about that kind of stuff. And and I, I've heard guys advocate that uh, you should have a little ritual before you compete. And it would include maybe a mantra that you repeat in your mind, maybe uh, the way that you tie your belt, fix your gi, uh, a few stretches. And, and you do those every time before you compete. When you're in regular training, when it gets to the open mat portion and, and you see your training partner across the mat that you match up against with well and, and you guys always go hard, you do that same routine before you roll with them. And pretty soon that routine becomes a mental cue that things are, just, things are about to get real. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big proponent of that, and I think everybody should do it. You know, in our BJJ summer camp we had just a couple weekends ago, I was talking with one of our guests who came down from Kansas City, Mindy Ashby, and and it was great to see you, Mindy. Great to meet you. But um, one thing she was telling me about is how she does the same warm up every time, uh, a little yoga warm up, little stretching. And, you know, I talked to her at length about that. And uh, I told her uh, as soon as uh, I heal myself, I'm going to uh, start doing her little warm up just to get it going. And she said it's done wonders for her. And, uh, you know, each and every time it's kind of like what Byron says, you're getting yourself tuned up before you tune somebody up. So um, I think it's a great idea. Nice play on words there, Gary. Yeah, we've talked we've we've talked about Pavlov's dogs before, right? Uh, yeah. The the scientist that uh, trained his dogs when they heard a bell that all of the physical uh, things that come along with eating would begin to happen with the dogs. They start to salivate and stuff, and and that's how those routines are. I think before you compete. Yeah, and so it doesn't have to, I mean, it, most commonly it's some sort of stretching or some sort of a warm-up, but even some, like, you can clap your hands three times or, uh, you know, do something like that. Or, or Joe's talking about uh, just mentally framing yourself. Do that at home, too. Do that before you sip on the mat to roll, and that'll help transition that over uh, and make that a smoother thing to do while you're competing. So you're not, yeah, if I clap my hands, that'll put me, no, it won't do anything for you. Unless you've done it for three years, then that's, 
right before you roll, you're going to you crack your knuckles or you, you I don't know what, you, you do something and it helps just condition your body to, here we go. Let's do this. <laughs> it reminds me of Diego Sanchez. Uh, Joe was talking about a mantra, you know, repeat a mantra before you uh, step on the mat. But remember Diego used to always do that as he, as he was coming out to the, uh, coming out to the ring. And uh, it's something Diego did every time, and he was always ready to fight. Yeah, wouldn't he yell the word yes over again? Yeah, over, like, I think that's what it was. I couldn't remember the word, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it was anything, if anybody out there friends with Diego, I'd like to hear about that, and uh, it'd be, he'd be a fun guy to have on the show. But uh, I think that's kind of what it was. He was just super positive. It'd be, it would be intimidating uh, for anything to I be in the cage yeah. and you have somebody used, like walking toward you yelling yes or yelling something like, man, this guy's coming over there to beat me up. <laughs> man, when I would watch his walk-ins just on TV as he was coming out yelling that, I was getting scared and I'm not even there. I can imagine it, his opponent. That, that'll make you leak a little bit, Gary. Well, I don't have trouble with that, Byron. <laughs> Anybody who's out there is a little bit new to jiu-jitsu and, and discovering the podcast, I want to invite you to check out our audiobook, Your First Year of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's really designed to get you through uh, some of the difficult things you're going to encounter during that first year. It's eleven ninety nine. It's about two and a half hours long. Check it out. And uh, it's, a lot, it's very similar to the podcast. It's basically just me talking to you about what to expect your first year and how to deal with that. So uh, well, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. Check it out. We've got some good reviews from people, and uh, we're glad it's helping out. It's time in our program. It's the time in our program where we do a quote, and this one was brought to us by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Is that how you say Nailed that, Byron? It. Nailed it, Joe. I'm sure Nailed it. Another. Good enough. That is perfect, Joe. I think he's related to uh, the Van Halen brothers, but I'm not sure. <laughs> von and Van, same thing. Anyway, his quote is. Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Wishing is not enough, we must do. It sounds pretty simple, but I'm reading it and I'm thinking about jujitsu and I'm thinking that there's a big gulf between knowing and applying. There's there's a lot of moves I, I think I understand, but actually applying them is difficult it, it takes baby steps you know you just you gotta step out of your comfort zone and and move forward that's my take on it what do you think gary well you know man this this quote hits jujitsu right on you know johan johan van halen he really hit it but um <laughs> knowing is not enough we must apply wishing is not enough we must do and i think about jujitsu man there is no lying in jujitsu and not lying on the mat we just can't lie about how good we are we can know we can watch all the videos we want we can tell everybody you know who won that pan ams you know this year what move that is but you must do it you have to get on the mat you're not going to get a belt unless you can apply that against a resisting opponent we're not just going to go through uh, some katas and uh, just say you know how to do it you have to be able to do it against a resisting opponent there is no lying we must do you know there's more than just knowing you know I, I, we talk about people who are book smart versus people who are street smart you know the guys on the jiu-jitsu mat the world champions they're book and street smart you know they got the street smarts you know they're they got a phd in street smarts you know phd in book smarts but uh you know they got the whole package going yeah you can wish you had that next belt all day long but 
if you don't get on the mat and put in the work. You know what they say, uh, wish in one hand and spit in the other and see which one fills up faster. <laughs> I've heard it a little bit you know, different though, than that. You have to like, spit in one hand, though, so you could start leaking. <laughs> leaking out a little early. <laughs> but the first part of this quote, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Uh, that's the difference. You know, when, when you learn the technique, let's just say, you know, Joe taught us how to do uh, the sweep today. And we do it, I don't know, 10 times, 20 times. We do it an hour. We and then we go and we roll, I should be thinking about that sweep. I should be trying to get in position to execute that sweep. And that's why I really do celebrate when a teammate of mine, or if I can pull off the move of the day, great. But but I don't I don't really celebrate that as much. But when somebody, when, you, when Joe shows me a sweep and they do that sweep to me, I am so happy. Like, A, you tried it, and, it, and B, it worked like that you're you're doing the technique so it's i think a lot of times people kind of just peter out with okay yeah i feel like i know this technique now i got it well you don't actually know it good enough to perform it while we're rolling i can almost guarantee you that because the whole room will will do techniques for a little while and then the people kind of peter out you know and that's understandable but not many of those people are doing that technique when it comes to rolling and i i think you must apply the technique to your actual jiu-jitsu with a, with a training partner in order to actually have that little bit deeper knowledge and bring it into your game. Because you could know about it. I know how to do Kimura. I, I know the ideas behind it. I know all this stuff. But in practice, I don't have a very good Kimura. You know, Byron, are you guys messing with me? First, you're talking about leaking. And now <laughs> within one, you know, Byron talking, he, he talks about petering out twice. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Old guy problems, Gary. <laughs> Gary's always a little paranoid. Uh, we're, we're messing with him. Yeah, it, it happens a lot. Like last, but, uh, I think it was hey, like, Byron, yeah. Byron, you were talking about celebrating. You know how you celebrate, uh, and I do want to call you out on that. Byron's talking about he celebrates when one of his teammates. You know, but Byron said he's not a big celebrator. That is totally false. <laughs> okay, I tell you, if you roll with Byron and he hits a submission on you. He's going to jump up. He's going to scream at the top of the lungs. He's going to start doing the moonwalk, a couple of cartwheels up and down the mat, and he's going to let everybody know about it. And uh, so, Byron, he will celebrate when he taps you out. Uh, it's not quite as big as Gary's celebration. Gary has these little cannons that go off and shoot confetti in the air. And it sounds Wait. that sounds simple. Okay. He's got to have somebody that so, man these confetti cannons. <laughs> so, okay, we're talking about leaking. Peter in and out, and it's the cannon supposed to be coming from the backside of me, Byron. Oh man, no! And I is just, that really confetti? Kind of the kind you see at like a big football game or a basketball game, you know, or something like that. Yeah, that's really what it meant, Gary. But uh, no, that is an awesome quote. You know, Wolfgang, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Yep, uh, always giving us good quotes <laughs> from Johann. Uh, we don't want to keep you from the interview any longer, so here we go with Rafael Lovato Sr. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. He does the barambolo while passing your guard. He is known for a lightning-fast gi choke that he only does in no-gi. His triangle choke has four sides. One of his cauliflower ears was eaten by a vegetarian. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, 
I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm excited to bring Rafael Lovato Sr. to the podcast. We've had uh, Junior on the show a while back, and I'm happy to get you on the show. Uh, Rafael Lovato Sr., welcome to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I always like talking to different uh, competitors and then also talking to coaches, and and you've got a lot of experience uh, with helping people discover jujitsu and get better at jujitsu and <laughs> get amazing at jujitsu, and so I know we're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, if, if somebody, and I don't know who they would be, but is a little unfamiliar with you, can you give us a little uh, summary of, of who you are and, and what you're up to? Yes, uh, of course, Rafael Lovato Sr., and uh, grew up in Chicago and uh, began my passion for martial arts really at a very, very young age. I was a wannabe gangbanger right on the southwest side of Chicago. And um, I, uh, I often tell people two things. One, uh, while it may not sound very popular, but I mean this with all my heart, and I'm very, very serious about this. One, I'm a walking proof. I tell people I'm living, walking, breathing proof there is a God because I should have been killed a long time ago or end up in prison. But the second thing is I'm an example of the benefits of training in martial arts, because I realize that discipline and the sacrifice, the focus that required to be good in martial arts was much greater than just being a a punk kid and getting in trouble. So, um, but yeah, I started uh, when I was very young and then started uh, formal training in traditional martial arts when I was 14, but I always, uh, considered myself a boxer. And, um, through the years, I've been very fortunate to train with some of the greats. Um, I trained in, uh, Kali Escrima, our niece with, uh, Dan Onosano, Richard Basile, Kakoi Kenyette. I trained, uh, Muay Thai with, uh, Chai Sir Suit, um, several others. And as well as, um, um, I've even done Penchak Silat with Paul de Tours, and, um, and of course, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which uh, has become, um, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy, I'm, I, I enjoy sports jiu-jitsu, I, I enjoy even getting out there and competing, uh, but I've always liked the MMA aspect. So, um, you know, that's really my, my favorite part. I like the striking in conjunction with the grappling, the clinching, the throwing, and uh, I, I admire the skill to be able to put it all together. Oh, we've got a lot already on the table here. Um, I want to go back just a little bit, and you talked about you know uh, being a, a a young, a really a boy, and and up against some tremendous odds, and uh, the fact that you made it out of that alive is a is a testament to God. How does that affect you as somebody who's running an academy, who's coaching kids, and 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 helping young people? Uh, when you see uh, young children, um, I guess yes. children. When you see children uh, come in and who may be having tough times at home or in the neighborhood. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I believe there's good in every child, and it's unfortunate that maybe their circumstances are are not the best. But I've seen children that uh, were very unsure of themselves and uh, maybe they needed that extra boost to gain that uh, self assurance. Not arrogance. I've never, never liked that. I've always discouraged that. Not arrogance or cockiness, but 
being confident, self-assured, and to reach goals. Because I've always emphasized, set realistic goals for yourself, maybe small goals at at first, and then you start to challenge yourself by reaching for higher goals. Um, But I've seen that happen, especially with young children. And if they're in a positive, constructive environment, with other like-minded children, good coaches, then it's amazing how far they can go. That our our uh, children's program here is uh, is one of the best, and we have some awesome competitors. It's amazing when you're seeing a little ten-year-old doing uh, really complicated spider guard moves, um, and so they're very very capable of learning. And of course, we we always emphasize. Being a gentle man or a gentle woman, being a good sport, being respectful, courteous, uh, looking someone in the eye and responding to them. Um, you know, when I was growing up, of course, this is back in the 60s uh, when there was a, a lot of racism, a lot of violence. Uh, you know, there was a, so many bad things going on. But uh, I had a few good mentors in my life that taught me, hey, you look someone in the eyes, you show them respect, you answer, yes, sir, no, ma'am, whatever. Uh, You don't just get respect because you're a minority or because of the color of your skin or because of your home life. You have to earn respect. And I think martial arts is a great catalyst for developing those social skills as well as physical skills, as well as um, those intrinsic personal challenges that we all have. And that's one of the things I've admired so much about training in martial arts. Tell me a little bit about your, your first martial arts coach and how they, they helped you as a child. <laughs> well, I'll never forget. Uh, here again, I'm just a punk kid, and I had a friend. I'll never forget him. His name was Dwayne Sides, and Dwayne was taking Taekwondo. And, of course, I was boxing at the time and uh, you know, thought of myself as a boxer. And um, Dwayne and I would get together and basically just beat each other up. And he finally talked me into going to uh, this martial arts school with him. And this is the honest truth. I'll never forget. I walked into the school, and uh, he introduced me to the instructor, who was a big man. His name was Dwayne Worley, and I'll never forget him. But I, I um, introduced myself to Mr. Worley, and I said, yeah, my name is Rafael Lovato. In one year, I'll be better than anybody you have here. And he just looked at me. And I, for a minute there, I thought he was going to hit me. But then he <laughs> kind of laughed, and he says, okay, prove it to me. Well, um, I think I surprised him because of my, my focus. I was very, very disciptured. And I remember I would get up at um, – I would get my brother, my sister up, my, my whole family, in fact. I'd get up in the morning around 4.30, 5 o'clock, go for a, for a run, and um, I would uh, shadow box, jump rope. I was working out, and uh, when I joined the school, I was usually the first one there and the last one to leave. In fact, he would have to just tell me, okay, kid, go home, get out of here. Um, but one year later, yeah, I was one of his enforcers. And uh, there was a couple of guys, I was one of them, that we were always the guys to, you know, someone came in from another school or, you know, at tournaments or whatever, we were, you know, we were the, the ones. But um, I, uh, you know, he turned out to be a great father figure to me. My own father uh, died tragically when I was just a baby, but he was like a father figure to me, a great man who to this day I'll, I'll never forget. He uh, was so good to me in directing me, giving me, giving me good positive direction and uh, then definitely helping with my, my training. 
that's an interesting story, and to think about how uh, you, you talked about giving kids confidence, but not letting them be arrogant with their uh, self esteem. And, yes. and you walk in as a as a little punk kid, arrogant. Yeah, I'm going to be the best there is in a short amount of time. Yes. And and he somehow he could have uh, taken that away from you and just you know, like you said, oh, yes. like just just yes. destroyed you in in the in the ring, and and it would have been over there. But he changed that arrogance to confidence, and ended up uh, helping you a ton. Yes, absolutely. Yes, but uh, yeah, through him, of course, I've met many others and uh, had some great training partners. Of course, as a kid, I remember uh, when uh, the Green Hornet came out. And uh, I remember my mother saying, hey, you want to see Cato? And I'm like, yeah, 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 of course. And I uh, remember watching Green Hornet. That's when I decided, man, I've got to do that. Uh, and, you know, tragically, I, of course, Bruce died in 73. I almost got to meet him. He came to Chicago one time um, in uh, near my area. And we went to, to go see him because he would travel with the um, – the show uh, doing a uh, little demonstration, signing autographs and all that and travel with the Batmobile and the black beauty and all that stuff. Well, we had just missed him. He had just left, but I got to see all the other stuff, but I was so determined as I got older to meet him and train with him, but I got to do the next best thing and train with many of his uh, old students and friends from, of course, Dan and Osano, Richard Castillo, uh, Ted Wong, Herb Jackson, Jerry Petit, uh, all those guys. And I uh, had, some, had some great, great uh, training sessions with them and spent a lot of time, eventually got certified through uh, Richard Bastille, who was a former boxer himself and uh, became a great, another great mentor and friend and, of course, tragically died a little over a year ago. But, um, you know, got to do the next best thing. And uh, so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long, fun road of uh, training and, and meeting some, some really tremendous uh, martial artists. That's kind of the the starting point of your early martial arts career. But um, yes, when did Jiu Jitsu come in the picture, and how'd that happen? All of us instructors that were um, uh, affiliated and certified with Richard Bastille, we every year we had an instructors conference, and we would have to go to Los Angeles. And Richard went first class with us. We had great training. He would bring in uh, guest instructors. Um, we each would make presentations. Um, it was a nonstop week long series of training, networking, everything from business to CPR, to, uh, marketing, to training with different people. And at, then at the end of this, there would be a great party or a luau. And, you know, a lot of guys would bring the wives out on that, that weekend. And, and uh, we, we would all have a great time. Well, in one of these conferences, he brought the Machado brothers. And I remember um, uh, Carlos and uh, let's see, it was Roger and I believe Jean-Jacques. Yes, Jean-Jacques was there. And um, uh, I remember... They, you know, they come in with these geese, and of course, we're all JKD guys, and we don't wear geese, but uh, they began showing some technique, and I thought, you know what, this is interesting, and uh, well, then, you know, we started doing these, going through these techniques, then at, at, toward the end, they got down on the mat, and they sparred every one of us, and I remember the helpless, hopeless feeling I had uh, sparring around. I sparred with uh, Carlos, the oldest brother, and consequently... Carlos and I kind of developed a, a friendship 
And um, so I started going and training with them. Um, I remember that I think I stayed an extra couple of days or something and and went to their academy. And uh, also in that time period, I also got to meet Hickson, Gracie, and train with him. And this is back in the days when, you know, a lot of times he'd he'd come to the school to just teach the classes himself. He'd jump right on the mat. I actually got to drill with him and spar with him. And, you know, between him, Carlos, and so many of those other great uh, jiu-jitsu guys, that was some of the best times I ever had getting my my butt kicked, you know. But um, it was just a, an amazing time of, uh, of learning and training. So that's how I got was introduced to jiu-jitsu. So after that, I used to go to L.A. I would travel to L.A. at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. And I would spend a week, sometimes even two weeks, and just training nonstop. And then one day, um, Carlos Machado called me and says, hey, Rafael, guess what? I'm moving to Dallas. And uh, so I was really excited because him and Chuck Norris are good friends and Chuck invited him to come to Dallas to start teaching there. So for six years, I would drive every Thursday morning. I'd get up probably around 430. I would drive to Dallas, do a private lesson with Carlos, stay and do his beginning class, his advanced class. And then usually after the training, we would go to lunch and I would be picking his brain um, and then come back. And I would share all this information with Raphael and uh, we would drill and train. And um, I did that for six years. And then of course, when I drove back, I would teach my own classes. So it was, it was pretty exhausting, but it was a great time of learning. And uh, to this day, Carlos is another one of those uh, people that I'll always admire and always be grateful for, for his, uh, his, his instruction. And in fact, in my own training to this day, I still do many things that I learned from him years ago. What were you doing, uh, like for work at the time that you were able to, to drive that much and spend that much time training? Well, um, we of course grew up in Chicago and, uh, um, I, um, in a trip one time when I was a kid, I, I met a, another gentleman who was from Oklahoma city and he was a very good martial artist in and of his own right. And uh, he invited me to come out and visit one time. And, um, so I, came to Oklahoma city and, uh, and, and eventually met my future wife and, um, well, she is from here. And, um, so anyway, we get married and, but, uh, we went to, we lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. We were there for almost 10 years. That is, that's in fact where Raphael was born and I was going to school there and I was pursuing another one of my passions, which is, uh, music. And, uh, but, uh, I was also an assistant instructor at the Cincinnati Collie Academy, but we decided to move back here to Oklahoma city, be closer to her family. And, um, uh, when we came here, I told her, look, I really want to start my own school. And, uh, my wife being the great woman she is, we, in August, we'll be celebrating our 37th anniversary. She was fully supportive. And, uh, so I started the school here. It was pretty rough. Uh, there was a lot of sacrifices that had to be made, but um, that's what I was doing. I was uh, I was teaching and uh, running the school, um, and fortunately would have guys and uh, you know that would help me out. That would uh, you know cover classes for me, things like that, while I was uh, traveling. Wow, it, uh, tremendous attitude towards learning and getting better, and uh, obviously that was important. And, and you're fortunate to have that. Uh, what is that, about a four-hour drive, three-hour drive from Oklahoma City? Yes, to Dallas, yes, about three hours. 
and um, so yeah, driving there and getting there on time to, to train with Carlos and do the class. It was an all morning event, and by the time after lunch, uh, I would leave probably around uh, sometimes around two, two thirty, something like that, and get here and then jump right into my own class. But it was well worth it. Well yeah. worth it. And there, it, it's I think it's hard for some people to understand. Uh, back then. That's how you would learn. I mean, you you couldn't yes. uh, throw a you yes. know go to YouTube or throw a, a DVD no. in by somebody no. who was a world class competitor. Uh, you had to go meet the people and get on the mat with them. Yes, yes. Back then it was uh, L.A., Florida, um, you know Miami. Um, you, you know, my goodness, if you you know back, I'm talking early '90s, mid '90s. You know, if, if you heard of a guy that was a purple belt, you know, that was like, wow, really? Oh, man, you want to, you sought him out, you wanted to train with him and learn everything you can. But, uh, yeah, in fact, uh, I remember buying the entire 11 tape, VHS tape series uh, from uh, Hanzo Gracie and Craig Kukuk. And, um, you know, honestly, um, when I would learn, um, you know, every day I would pick up Rafael from school. And unless he had a, a big test or something like that, he and I would spend about an hour and a half, two hours together. It was just our time. And we would experiment, drill, um, you know, and I we would I would show him what I learned. And, uh, you know, he was watching the I remember the the, the Henzo tapes and and uh, then we would start to develop, hey, well, maybe we can do this, we can do that, or maybe if we try this grip, or maybe go about it from this direction, or whatever. And we just, uh, for, for a longest, the longest time, you know, he and I were, uh, we would bounce techniques off of each other. And, of course, it was a great time because, you know, it was a great way to, to, to bond with, with him. And, um, and then, of course, he would go home and eat a little something and then uh, come back for class and, and go home and do homework and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and how important was it for you as a father that he did uh, jiu-jitsu or some martial art? Oh, he had to do it. You know, I joke with people um, that, uh, you know, they ask, well, when did he start training? Well, he started when he was in the womb. Um, you know, I and I joke with people, yeah, when he was born, uh, you know, the doctor smacked him. He punched the doctor, you know, and then uh, choked out the assistant, you know. <laughs> but uh, he was he, he was around us his whole life. When we were in Cincinnati, um, you know, he was very little, and, and he would go to the gym with me, and, and he would be right next to me working out. Uh, I would always go early to do some bag work, do some cardio work before I, I had my class. And I never would get on to him. I always would try to encourage him. And the only time I would really watch him and correct him is if he was doing something where he could injure himself. Because my idea was I wanted him to associate this with fun. Um, and if I was just constantly belittling him or correcting him, you know, I didn't want it to d discourage him. But my two primary goals for him were good exercise habits and to be able to defend himself should he have to. Um, and that was it. I never, never told him, hey, you got to compete. I never did that. He's the one that wanted. And then that changed everything. When he told me he wanted to compete, then the training got a little more intense and got uh, you know more focused. But he was always so driven. Again, I never had to force him. He, um, you know, he did it on, all on his own, and I would just help him and encourage him the best I could. I think that's uh, a, a lot of wisdom as a as a guy trying to bring up a, 
his your son and and really focus on enjoying it and if, uh, teaching good exercise habits and and yes. self defense. If if you push too hard, sometimes it's hard to enjoy something that it you're back, being pushed real hard on. Yeah, it backfires. It backfires, and you turn them away, and then they don't want to have anything to do with it. You know. So in fact, in Cincinnati. His first formal classes were actually with one of the other instructors because I, I knew I would be too hard on him. So I had one of the other guys start teaching him formally. In fact, I still have his very first uh, certificate of rank that he received when he was five years old. And I remember the instructor telling me that he actually, at five years old, learned faster and was more technical than uh, many of his adult students that had been doing the, doing the training for a while. So we always had this natural ability, this uh, gift and talent for uh, the martial arts. And, of course, when he was very little, he was so awkward, and uh, but he never would give up. He would always try. Uh, he couldn't jump rope, but he would always try to jump rope. I would run with one of my training partners around a, a high school track, and, uh, you know, he was so little, you know, I'm talking five, four or five years old, and but he would never give up. He always tried. And... Um, so he still, of course, still has that that drive and that discipline. Yeah, and 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 focusing on getting to enjoy it. Uh, it's yes. From my perspective, I've never raised a, a world class athlete, <laughs> but it, it, you could push real hard and really and hammer them and, and get them to become uh, you know that type of an athlete. Uh, but but if you expose them to the joys and the uh, excitement and and a passion for it. Uh, they'll do that on their on their own. Um, yes. so, some of them will anyway. And, and he sounds like one of those kids that it just he once he began to love it, he wanted to become as good as he could. And uh, yes, absolutely. So when did you see either as a, a father or a coach um, something different about him? Because you know there are hundreds, probably thousands of, of coaches. Uh, around that have their kids doing jujitsu, and some of them think, "Yeah, my my child will become one of the best in the world." But most of them are pretty realistic, and they 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 have the, the goals of enjoyment and fitness and self defense and and that sort of thing. But when did that? Did you kind of see something different about him? Well, um, I actually could see it when he was very young, because his um, never give up attitude and. Um, uh, I could sense that there was something different there. There was, you know, and, and I'll tell you something else too. Um, you know, my wife and I, to this day, we, we think of him and he, he's our miracle baby. You know, we almost lost him. He was premature. And, uh, and at five months old, we almost lost him. He almost died. He had a very, very serious case of the croup. And, um, and I remember just, uh, my goodness, that, that feeling of, you know, your, your child in, in, in the hospital and intensive care and these tubes everywhere and, and what a hopeless, helpless feeling. And somehow, thank God, he came through that. And, you know, I could just sense that something about him is always uh, very goal oriented. I never had to force him into anything. And, uh, I remember too, when he was really young, I remember in his room, he had a, um, a a board where he would write down his goals. And I remember actually a friend of ours coming by one time and Raphael wanted to show his room with all his posters and swords and knives and all this martial arts paraphernalia. And this friend of ours saw that board and there was a list. 
of goals that he had, um, winning the Nationals, being a world champion, winning the Pan Ams, uh, winning the Europeans, um, all these different goals. And, and I remember my friend saying to him, hey, Rafael, you don't think you're setting yourself up for disappointment, do you? You think maybe you're shooting a little too high? And very, very resolutely, Rafael says, no, I'm not. I'm going to do that. And sure enough, he has. He's done all that and more. Uh, so, and I actually could see that when I was very young, because when other kids were doing, you know, typical kid things, he, you know, we wanted him to have fun. And I think he did, you know, we would do things and that, uh, you know, were a lot of fun, different activities, we would take vacations. And, but he was also always, always determined. He always had that goal, that mindset that one day I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm, I don't want to be, you know, like I often tell my students, um, you know, who trains to be mediocre, who lives to be mediocre, you know, who says, Hey, I want to be the most normal, the most average person in the world. There has to be this idea of excellence. We have to try to strive to be something more than what we're capable of doing. Um, and, uh, and somehow Raphael has always had that. So all I try to do is just, to try to, to develop it and try to improve but he's always had that. You talked a little bit about uh, being interested in the MMA aspect of uh, jujitsu. Why is that? Well, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, I look to my roots where I grew up. I grew up in Chicago where um, there was, uh, unfortunately, there was a violence constantly um in fact just recently after rafael's last fight in chicago with uh, the, against uh, the very tough gerald harris we got to spend some family time there in chicago and i took him to my old neighborhood where i grew up and uh you know i was flooded with all these memories and these emotions because i remember literally oftentimes i ran to school and i ran back home because you know i had to worry about this gang or this gang or this group of guys or this um, so in other words, I know what works and I know what doesn't work, you know, uh, and I hate to say this. I love jujitsu. I love sports jujitsu, but I don't care what kind of, you know, how great your spider guard is. Try doing that on the streets in, uh, restrictive clothing in gym shoes, uh, or in a business suit on a sidewalk with glass or gravel or bricks or, you know, other things in the way, you know, in a, in a landing of an apartment building, try doing that. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. So the other thing is when I ran my school all these years, I had a, of course, an application and a questionnaire that people would have to fill out. And one of the questions I asked was, why do you wish to study martial arts? No one ever, ever responded. I want to be a world champion or a national champion or world champion, whatever. No one ever said that. No one. What they said was one of two things. One, I want to be in better shape. Two, I want to be able to defend myself, my family, should I have to. So I was always interested in what works, what's realistic. I don't want the flash and, you know, the fancy stuff. I want what works. Um, you know, I love sports jiu-jitsu, and I always advocate, get out there and try to compete. At least do it one time, you know. You have to have those butterflies. Look across the mat at someone else. And test yourself against that that person. That's good for you. But ultimately, I think we're all more concerned with, you know, the street. 
Um, there's no rules, no referees, no time limits, no age or weight categories. It's for real. And there's no honor. And so that's why, to me, MMA is the most, well, most closely resembles that. Um, and to tell you the truth, I remember when I was a kid, I was like 15, 16 years old. Back then, we didn't have the four-ounce MMA gloves like today. Back then, I remember those uh, tempo gloves, you know, Bruce Lee entered the dragon. Uh, and I remember I had those gloves. I had some uh, baseball shin pads uh, or some foam shin pads. Uh, the equipment back then wasn't anything like it is now. But I remember I would get guys and I'd say, hey, look, uh, no hard feelings, nothing personal, but I want you to try to take my head off. And these guys were street fighters, good street fighters, boxers. And one time, this is the honest, honest truth, I even got the high school wrestling coach to come and spar with me. And we went at it. And uh, so back then, I'm talking, you know, my goodness, 73, uh, 74, in that time frame, I was doing MMA. I didn't know it was called MMA, but I was doing MMA. And we would go at it, and I learned a lot from that. And I remember going with a high school wrestling coach, great guy, and um, I remember I bloodied him up, and I remember him taking me down and introducing me to a world that I had never been in before, you know? And um, that was my first introduction to, wow, what happens when you're on the ground with a big guy who's got that man strength, and he's wailing away at you? And um, so, you know, I understand the, um, you know, we can't, uh, of course, there has to be rules. But like I said, in my opinion, MMA close, most closely resembles safely a real fight. That's why I like it so much. Looking at uh, jujitsu and, and MMA, uh, part of, I think, jujitsu's uh, issues with self-defense is that we train to to deal with other jujitsu people. And it was just yes. last night I was, we were teaching uh, a psych control uh, technique and, and there was, you know, the guy underhooks and what are you going to do with his underhook and you're, and you're on top? And I was talking to a guy who's pretty new and I'm like, I was saying new people don't underhook like that because they don't know that that could be a good thing for them. So that's not a, <laughs> yes. like this technique, although it's basic, it's versus a jujitsu person or maybe versus a wrestler. Yes. It's it, versus yes. somebody who's just kind of going trying hard, but they don't know what to do. And I think of a lot of the techniques that we have in jujitsu are to solve other problems that jujitsu is, pre is presenting us. Exactly. And not only that, not a, does it apply in jiu-jitsu, but many other martial arts? Why do you think there's so many different martial arts? Uh, well, for example, with uh, Chinese martial arts, many of them are for defense against another person doing the same martial arts. Um, and then all of a sudden you get someone that, that does something completely different. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, wow, you know, he wasn't supposed to respond that way. So while I don't advocate violence at all, um, you know, I also believe that, you know, like I tell people, having these skills is like having insurance, you know, uh, you hope you never need it, but it's nice knowing it's there. And uh, I remember when I ran a school, of course, I turned it over to Raphael a few years ago, but my students, uh, we had a curriculum that I developed and they had to know the movements, the techniques with the gi and perform them. Uh, but they also had to train in striking. And of course, being a boxer, a Muay Thai guy, everyone had to have at least the rudimentary skills of basic striking. So they had to learn the basic punches in, in boxing, footwork, stance, 
Muay Thai knees, elbows, kicks, uh, clinching takedowns, um, you know, dealing with uh, uh, the plumb position, the Muay Thai clinch, or you know, a wrestler's clinch. Uh, so in the test, it was a grueling, exhausting affair because when they finally tested for the blue belts, they of course had to perform the technique on the curriculum. Then they would have to spar with different people according to you know their ability, their their, their age. There might be some limitations. So I never pushed anyone beyond what I knew they could do. But they would have to spar people with a gi. And then at the end, then the real fun started. The gis came off, the MMA gloves came on, shin pads, and you got to do MMA. And that was what I, I required. You know, I respect the sport aspect. I think it's a lot of fun. It's great. But come on, you know, a lot of these guys that do it, uh, in all honesty, they couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. One time you get punched in the face, it changes everything. And you just need to know how to deal with that. Um, you know, that's my personal philosophy on that. And I feel like sometimes we're, we kind of are losing that and getting away from it. And we forget reality, you know, the street, um, you know, what happens in the real world. Um, I used to do what we called environmental training. I got that from Dan Olisano. I would have the guys together and um, and maybe I might just throw some focus mitt on the mat at random, some focus mitts or tie pads and say, hey, that's that's a rock or that's a, a, a bottle on the street. You know, you get near that. Hey, what's to say the guy couldn't pick that up and smash you in the head? Uh, of course, my training in um, in Kali, I do a lot with edge weapons, impact weapons, and I've also done a lot with firearms. Uh, so I, I, I like to deal with that. Uh, there would be days when we would have a class. And I would have everybody in street clothes and, uh, you know, just clothes, old clothes, you know, maybe go to the Salvation Army and get something that they didn't care if it got torn up. And uh, we get on the mat. Yes, with the shoes and everything, because the mats can always be cleaned later on. And we would do some sparring into different situations with um, street clothes on. Uh, we would even do things uh, with multiple opponents and uh, different drills and had a lot of fun with that. Uh, but to me, that was far more important than just the sport aspect. You know, I'll tell you the truth, I could care less about them. Um, 50-50 or Bidumbolo or any of that kind of stuff. You know, that, that doesn't exist in the real world. <laughs> well, and uh, a lot of those positions and are dealing with other high-level grapplers because the, uh, yes. the odds of you bumping yes. into that guy and upsetting him in the, the mall or the, the club are pretty slim. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. Um, you, you also mentioned that uh, you would recommend people compete at least once, just to just to yeah, get out there right. and do it. Mm -hmm. When when is a good time to do that? Well, you know, nowadays there's always a local tournament. Um, you know, just get out there and try some of these uh, smaller tournaments. Um, maybe do a couple of those and then get out there and, and man, try, you know, the, uh, the Pan Ams or the nationals or, you know, even the, the, the worlds, uh, get out there and try, you know, but if you want, just do start off with some of a smaller local tournament, uh, because there's something to be said about going out there and, um, you know, you're abiding by a certain set of rules, but still it is a, a martial art. It does involve tactics, strategy, uh, you know, your physical attributes, your mental fortitude. So it does involve that. And uh, I think, and I've always told my students, hey, if, if, you know, and I know some guys, some great jujitsu guys that they just don't care for competition. And, um, but 
you know, they will get out there and at least try it. And I think it's good for everyone to get out there and at least try it, you know, get out there and test yourself. Um, but, you know, by all means, you know, get with good people and then spar, train, drill on the mat, have fun with that. And, um, but no, I do like it. And I think it's, it's good. Would you think somebody needs to be trained for six months or a year or, or a certain amount of uh, exposure before they get out there and compete or as soon well, as everybody possible? Everybody is different. You know, some people are, are just natural athletes. I've seen guys, you know, with just, uh, my goodness, uh, six months of training and get out there and, you know, jump in a beginning division and just dominate, you know, do really, really well. And then there's, you know, that person like myself, who's just a normal average person who doesn't have that, that, you know, that natural ability to learn as fast, you know, sometimes, you know, for them, it may take a little bit longer. You don't want them to jump in there and just be discouraged. You want them to feel like, you know, and like I always tell my students, Hey, you're, you're already a, a winner. You're a champion just for getting out there and trying because, you know, there's always those people that can talk and uh, say, Oh yeah, well you should have done this or I would have done that or this. Well, you get out there and do it. Okay. You're already, um, I think you've already proved something by just stepping out there and trying. There's a lot to be said for that. I remember way back, I think it was 94, 95, when I had the pleasure of bringing Hoyler Gracie out to my school. And um, I was the first one to bring the Gracies here to Oklahoma, to the state of Oklahoma, first one to bring them a shower. And I've had many, many others. Um, but Hoyler, he was also going to another state. So he got to spend like four days here. So I spent a lot of time with him talking to him and I'll never forget what he told me one time. Uh, one day we were out, I think we had some lunch and I said to him, you know, it must've been tough growing up and being a Gracie whenever you got out there and competed, there had to be so much pressure on you. And he said something to me that was truly astounding. He says, no, there was no pressure at all. My dad told me that if I won, he would give me $10. If I lost, he would give me 20. And I'll never forget that because the emphasis, and this is why I always try to, to um, convey to Raphael, the emphasis was on learning and doing your best, not necessarily winning, but learning and doing your best. And, I'm, and I've always tried to convey that to, like I said, Raphael and all my students, just get out there and try, do your best and learn from it. Wow, that's uh, I never have heard that story before, and uh, that's a great attitude to have, uh, especially when you're uh, competing and, and it's it's fairly new to you. And you, I think people think they're going to win, and half yes. of the people in a, in a bracket are going to lose the first match, and all but one of them of will have a loss by the time it's over. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> I I remember. Uh, I don't know what if it was probably 2004. You guys were having. I'm, I live in Kansas, and and you guys were having tournaments uh, there in Oklahoma City, and it was oh, yeah. a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do like every about every six months. Yeah, uh, would have. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that, and um, yeah, and that was uh, one way to. Of course, there were no tournaments around back then; only the big ones, yeah. you know, through the IBJJF. And so I started doing these tournaments just to give my students the opportunity and quite frankly, quite honestly, to give my son the opportunity <laughs> to get out there and, and compete because he always competed, always. I, I remember I signed up for, I think it was a, it was a no-gi uh, tournament or, or division. I don't know which if you mix them uh -huh. both up then, but um, I, I signed up for intermediate. I think I was maybe a blue belt. Uh, 
and I wanted to do intermediate and uh, we got called in and, 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 and you told, told us as a group, there's not enough people for intermediate. So we're going to have beginner and advance. And you and I had a short conversation about where I would go. And, and, and you said, do you want, did you come here to have a good match or did you come here to try to win a medal? And, and it, it, it changed my perspective on and what I was doing because I really wanted to win. But the way you explained it to me, I really wanted to have a good match and also win. I didn't want to beat somebody who uh, who didn't you know belong in the same division as me. So I bumped up to advance. I, I think I lost by a point or two, but uh, I had a great time. And I, I remember that the attitude towards my competition is I came here for a the toughest match I can get. And and it huh. was in the advanced division that? as I had a, a year or two on the mats and and uh, I had a good time and I and I learned that lesson from you early on. <laughs> How about that? Well, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, how about that? Yeah, you you were very busy, and it was just a uh, a conversation you had with one of the you know I don't know a couple hundred competitors that you had on you know that you were working with, and you were making brackets and and working with people, and and uh, I was like, well, he's right. I I did come here to have a good match. If I wanted to just win, uh, that's not what I'm looking for. I want to get better, and uh, it changed my perspective that? on that. Huh. And that and those tournaments were great back then. <laughs> Yeah, those were some. Uh, those were were the days. Oh my goodness, I remember those. <laughs> I remember, and I don't think it was the same tournament. Maybe a different one when uh, uh, Junior got his black belt in front of uh, everybody, and that was really uh, oh, amazing. Oh yes, yes, yes. I'll never forget that. Yes, it was just a year after I got mine, and uh, that was really special because, of course, not only you know did he get his black belt, but we became the first American father and son black belts. And he was also the youngest American to ever get a black belt. Wow. What was it like getting your black belt? Oh, it was amazing. Yes. Uh, Likewise with me, it was in Dallas at a tournament. And uh, I had a lot of my students. It was a huge tournament. A lot of my students competing. And uh, But uh, Carlos Machado had several of us uh, get together and did a beautiful ceremony. I remember the place was packed. It was a huge gym. And I forget just how many people there were there, but it was packed. And Carlos uh, presented me with uh, my black belt. And uh, it was a very, very daunting and just a, a, a very uh, overwhelming experience. I was really pleased. and, and um, But I'll never forget the feeling I had. I felt like, wow, uh, now, I, now I'm in graduate school. I finally got my bachelor's. Now I'm in graduate school. Now I have to really, really train and really study. And uh, so it was a very, very humbling experience, but it was very, very special. Wow, that's that's really cool. A couple of things I want to get uh, to talk to you about. Um, you mentioned music as another passion of yours. Uh, yeah. Any any similarities or anything you could learn from the music world and, and take it on the mats or vice versa? Oh, a lot of similarities. First of all, uh, I am a, a classical I am a classically trained musician. That was uh, one of the main, the main, in fact, the primary reason why we went to Cincinnati, Ohio. I work for the uh, the archdiocese there. Uh, believe it or not, I'm uh, I play a big, huge, massive pipe organ. Uh, so I was a um, I played for uh, for the the church, and um, I also directed um, a volunteer as well as a professional choir, a handbell choir. 
special occasions, I would have a brass quintet or a string quartet. So in other words, I play Bach or Franck or Vidor. Uh, you know, I'm playing Brahms, uh, some very, very serious and linear music. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I will make a confession while I love jujitsu. And I'm uh, very grateful for the, the people I've met through this uh, journey of training in martial arts. I love um, the fact, you know, I'm 60 years old now, but, you know, compared to other 60-year-olds, my goodness, I'm in so much better shape. Um, but I will say that music is my real, true passion. Because for me, when I play music, it is, uh, it is a form of worship to me. Uh, I don't just play. I don't just go through the motions. I never, never perform just another gig. I don't even like that word, especially related with classical music. It's not another gig for me. Uh, I don't do certain music that a lot of other organists will refer to as flash and trash, uh, something that sounds really flashy, but, you know, it's just simple to do and get some oohs and ahs and then just go on. No, every piece of music I play is special to me. And like I said, it is an absolute form of worship for me personally. I've been uh, very uh, privileged. In fact, I just returned from Toronto, Canada, where I taught a seminar at our good friend and uh, my and Rafael's uh, Muay Thai coach, Mauricio, uh, a model. And um, I was very privileged to get to play the largest pipe organ in all of Canada. And, uh, and then I also played at the Episcopal Cathedral there and was actually even invited by one of the assistant um, uh, ministers that, hey, you should come back and do a concert for us. And I do occasionally do, uh, do recitals, and I'm very involved with Oklahoma City University here. Um, and then also, uh, just a couple months ago, I was in Spain. I, I enjoy going there. My best friends are there, and I go as often as I can. I, I also got to play in the uh, huge massive cathedral of uh, Cordoba, which can seat um, over 40,000 people in this cathedral. And uh, so that, like I said, is really special to me. Now, the similarities, you think about this, with music, you're performing. When you get out there and compete, you're performing. You have to prepare and practice. I know when I played and I've had special services or I have a recital, I have to spend hours and hours drilling and and training, practicing. In fact, oftentimes I have to take maybe just one or two measures of a particular passage that's very, very difficult. And I have to go over and over and over and over until my fingering is perfect. And, of course, with a pipe organ, you didn't get involved in your feet because you've got 32 pedals that you have to play. You have expression pedals. You have... Uh, pistons or buttons you have to push constantly while you're playing or the draw knobs that you have to pull or push. Uh, so it, it involves a lot. It, it involves tremendous focus. The pipe organ is called the king of instruments because it's not only the most powerful, it's also the most um, difficult to play. So you think about that. You're getting ready for a big match. You have to drill, drill, drill constantly. Oh, man, I keep getting caught in this one bad position or I get caught in this one submission. Why? You have to analyze and drill it and drill it over and over until you're, you're, uh, you're confident that you're not going to get caught there again. When you go and perform uh, in music, hey, you know, we're only human. Sometimes we have a bad performance. Sometimes we have a great performance, just like in jiu-jitsu. Sometimes our, we're off a little bit. Sometimes there's other things in our mind. We're not completely focused. Same thing with, with music. You're, um, so the similarities are very, very much the same. 
Uh, now, for practical purposes, obviously when I train, my jiu-jitsu is very different because I'm always concerned about my fingers. Uh, so I do grips differently. If someone is going to break my grip, I let them have it because uh, I don't want to hurt my fingers. Uh, also, I re-grip a lot. Um, so I do some very, very unusual things, certain chokes, like the Bravo choke, I do it totally different. So that way I don't have to switch grips so much or feed the lapel so much where I'm going to take a chance of jamming fingers. So I, I've got some really weird and rather, if I say so myself, some innovative ways of doing grips just because I'm concerned about my, my fingers. Wow, that's I had you're explaining all this stuff about music and all that, and I it didn't even occur to me that you would alter your training to protect uh, what you're doing yes. with your music and yes, and absolutely. I think you would be a great I'm, yeah, honestly. I'm I'm at the I'm at the I have a practice instrument in my house, and then I um, I have a number of uh, of pipe organs here available to me in Oklahoma City, so I'm there constantly every day. I try to practice for um, for at least several hours, and uh, and then I you know I go and I play, and I'm I so I'm every day I'm at the bench, so I'm always concerned about about uh, about that, and like I said, I've adjusted the training for that. Have you had many issues with with either grappling or striking arts affecting your ability to play? Uh, no, uh, just one time I'll never forget. Um, I. Um, I remember I was with Carlos and, uh, and, uh, it was in a class and, um, he was training and he, and he mentioned, Hey, Rafael, why don't you train with, uh, this guy? And he mentioned his name, but I thought he was a, a Brazilian guy and, um, and he was wearing a white belt. And so I remember I, I went and I said, I said, hello to him. I said, Hey, you want to train with me? But I said it to him in Portuguese and he looked at me kind of funny. And so we started training and I made a very, very big mistake, but I learned a valuable lesson that day. He was no white belt. Uh, this guy could tell immediately by the way he was moving, and he started moving really, really hard. And at one point, threw me so hard that uh, my thumb uh, bent back and actually touched my wrist. So at that point, I got a little upset and because uh, he was going so hard. And I got him in a triangle, and I remember it was... I was really um, working on that triangle to get him to, to tap, and uh, Carlos stepped in. And um, I found out later on this guy was like uh, undefeated, 13 years uh, Iran Iranian uh, national wrestling champion. <laughs> but I remember, like for months, I couldn't even tell my belt. That's the only time I ever really messed up a, a finger. But you know, fortunately, it healed up, and and uh, and I was I was okay. <laughs> but that's been the only time. Wow, I I think of many jobs. I mean, you could you could have a surgeon or an an artist, or there's a lot of things when you need your your hands to be in very good working order in order to to do yes. them. And I think that yeah, the the things you've learned over the years. Uh, I don't know if if I was a surgeon, which I'm certainly not. I, I would be looking at you know coming to spend some time and, and learning. Okay, how do I protect my hands while I'm doing this to make sure. Uh, I'm yes. able to do both jujitsu and make a living at the same time, and uh, right. I think that like the years you've accumulated of of doing this and being smart about it, uh, yeah, that's a tremendous resource. What but you mentioned, if you got a grip and you see someone's going to break it, you just let go, you let them have it. You don't I like to, them. yeah, I let them. Any other uh, big tips you have for? I mean, just specifically hands, protecting your hands and protecting your fingers. 
Well, uh, taping them is, is of course good. Um, but, uh, you know, just, just be careful, always be careful. And, uh, one thing too, I, I have learned, especially as I've gotten older is now I'm very selective of, uh, the people that I train with. Um, you know, of course we were all beginners at one time, but of course, as you know, when you're a beginner, you don't have the technique. So you rely many times on what you do have or what you do know, and that is your, your strength or your speed or your, that simple desire to, to survive a situation. So consequently, a lot of times you get explosive or moves erratically. And then the other person who is going very technical and trying to be nice and just train, uh, they get hurt. So nowadays I just train, uh, you know, I train with Rafael. We kind of, we still have our time. Now it's kind of reversed. He's helping out the old man. And, uh, so, uh, he and I, we train usually every Thursday morning and, uh, and we try to train a couple of times, but definitely on Thursday mornings. And he and I will get down and just roll together as far and, and have fun. Um, because, you know, of course, his technique is flawless. And he, he knows, you know, about my music and, and all that. Uh, but I, I've got some other guys here. We've got some really good black belts, good brown and purple belts that I like to get down and, and roll around with. Because I don't have to worry about, you know, about that. My days of, of uh, proving anything are over. I don't have to prove anything at all. Uh, I just want to have fun, train, help people if I can. My One of my greatest joys is just to, you know, help uh, students out, show maybe something that, and if they come back and say, hey, that really helped, or wow, that, you know, what a difference that made, man, that's that makes you feel so good. Uh, but the other thing is, too, I would always tell my students, you know, I love aphorisms, um, and one of them, my favorite ones was I would tell my students to train 50%. For the partner and 50% for themselves, and you both improve 100%. You know, so leave the, the ego outside because we're all a team. Train to, with each other to help each other. You know, if so and so catches me sometimes, you don't have to get mad. I never allow people to curse or throw a mouthpiece or stomp off the mat. No, no, no. I'd stop that right away. Look, we're all here together. We all have a common goal. Uh, so leave that out of it the childishness, the, the temper tantrums. You know, learn from that, and uh, and that way it minim- also minimizes injury. So, uh, anyway, those are the things that I try to to advocate to uh, my students. And like this morning, uh, Raphael's in Europe right now, so I taught his class for him, and uh, so I enjoy uh, teaching. Still, I'm doing a lot of seminars. Uh, just taught a series of seminars the last couple of weeks. Was in Denver, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then went to Toronto. And uh, so I love to help people and, uh, and, and try to share, you know, what I can. Yeah. I, I, I love that train 50% for yourself and 50% for the other person. And, uh, it, with that attitude, you'll soon be one of the favorite training partners of everybody in the room. Um, yeah, exactly. It's important that the other person's learning as well. So, uh, yes, you might be a more experienced person training with a newer person, but you might ask them, what are you working on? And maybe they're working on yes. not attacks. Well, then give them that mount opportunity a couple times while you're training. Exactly. Because they can't get exactly. there on their own. And let, yeah, right. that's, that's a great attitude to have towards your training partners. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I've had a, a blast talking with you. I've learned a lot about you and about some of your philosophy on the mat and off the mat. Uh, do you have any uh, final advice or uh, anything you want to say to the audience? Um, you know, 
have fun, have fun. And, um, if you, you know, like I said earlier about the goals, you know, setting goals for yourself, whatever they may be, maybe weight loss or getting better at a certain area, uh, or a certain part of your game. Um, but you know, have fun with it. And, uh, you know, if you reach for the stars, at least you'll get to the mountaintop, you know? And, uh, and the other thing is too, I know just from my own personal experience, we're always capable of doing more than what we think. And that's why I like to, to, uh, to try to set those goals and try to push yourself more and more. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I competed. It had been 15 years since I competed. And uh, I remember, uh, what this is, I think three years ago, I jumped in and did the, the, the master senior worlds. And, um, I remember, uh, I've been training so hard and, uh, doing a lot of cardio and, you know, I know it'd been 15 years. I knew my timing was off and I knew, you know, I wasn't as good, but, but I set that goal that my cardio would be, would be superb. And, uh, so I was training every day really hard. And I remember I went against a gentleman, I forgot his name. And I'll never forget, uh, he beat me. He beat me by two points. But when we got off the mat, he collapsed. He was so exhausted, he collapsed. <laughs> and I thought, my goodness, this guy just beat me. But he's the one out on the, on the, on the floor uh, huffing and puffing, you know. And I was dancing on my feet. I was like, man, I'm ready to go another round, you know. So, you know, hey, like I said earlier, you don't always win. But there has to be that personal vindication of, hey, I did my best. And even if I lost, uh, I'm going to go out there on my shield and I'm going to give it my all. And uh, some of the best, best times I've ever had when I was a kid, when I competed, uh, was against, you know, guys that I lost to. Because, man, it was a great experience. I never gave up. I fought my heart out. And I felt like, you know what, if this guy ever sees me again, he's going to be hoping that he'll never have to go against me again, you know, and, uh, and then be friends and have that great. And that's the beauty too, as you should say, you know, we're all, we're, even though we may fly a different flag, we're all still part of a, a brotherhood. You know, we, we share the, the same goals, sweat, and disappointment and training and, and injuries sometimes and setbacks. And, you know, so it's, it's a beautiful thing. It really is, you know, uh, my son was just in uh, London where he taught a seminar at Roger Gracie's. How awesome is that that he can go to a guy that he's competed against before and he's like opening up his school to him, you know? So I, I think that's a beautiful thing about this sport that we do. That is awesome. And it's, uh, it's great where the, the sport is at now. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for hopping on here with me and uh, I look forward to maybe getting you back on in the future. Oh, yeah. I'd love to. Byron, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate this. This has been a real pleasure. I love sharing some of the old stories and, and talking about this. Thank you so much. I want to thank Rafael Lovato Sr. for stopping by. Uh, if you haven't got the opportunity to check out the interview we had with his son, uh, great. Uh, kind of cool to listen to those back-to-back or you know together. And, uh, man, what a team. Father-son team, and it's just... I like the... The, the fact that they train together like they have a day that they that, hey this is our day to train let's do it and and that's just uh, you know at one point it doesn't matter if you're doing like world class jiu jitsu you're hanging out with your dad you're hanging out with your son you're having a, a good time you're sharing a uh, enjoyable uh, art together man that is that is a great relationship they have and uh, 
so glad he was uh, willing to do an interview and, and bring bring uh, his story uh, to you guys. Yep, and hey, also check out uh, the interviews we've had with their other teammates from Oklahoma City. Uh, Justin Rader we've had on the show. We've had Jared Dopp on the show, and we've had Dallas Niles on the show. So definitely uh, check that out. Five uh, interviews from people in the in the same gym. So uh, that's pretty cool. Yep, man. I think they I think they'd say that's a talent hot spot right there. It's the yeah. definition of it. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, Daniel Coyle needs to go check out Oklahoma City and see what they got <laughs> going in the water over there. I think I mentioned it to him when I when I uh, I talked to him. I was like, Hey, there's some. You know, you can go to like the big jujitsu places, and of course, there's great jujitsu there. But in Oklahoma City, like it, like okay, why is it there? What is happening? You know, like that. That's a uh, that's a mystery that, that, that somebody could look into and, and really figure out what they're doing differently. You could do the same thing with Absolute MMA in Australia. W- what are these guys doing to train uh, all kind of isolated from the rest of the, you know, the big jiu-jitsu world and come in and do really well in competition? It's amazing. Um, yeah. Speaking of that school, we've had two guests from that, that place on there, uh, Craig Jones and uh, Lachlan Giles. So definitely uh, check those two out there too. With 253 episodes under our belt, yeah. we've got a and lot of... What, <laughs> you know, and the other thing is, like, <laughs> what, um, you know, you're talking about the talent code. Why is there such a strong podcast talent code in Wichita, Kansas? Like, what is it? What happened, you know? Why is there uh, such good podcasters there? I, yeah, well, I don't it's know. Be- it's because of the pod squad. <laughs> yay, pod squad. Yay, us. <laughs> uh, crazy. Actually, I was lying about that part. <laughs> Something I'm not lying about uh, is this. Uh, Good segue. Yeah. There's a, I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a website that has kind of rated the top 100 BJJ blogs and websites uh, that you should go check out. And you know what, guys? We're on the list. <laughs> uh, we're cur- we're ranked we? 22. And, uh, yeah, some, there are some well, big times. You know, yeah. yeah. The crazy thing is that is blogs and websites. You know, it doesn't even talk about our podcast. You know, when I first was reading it, I was like, this can't be right because it said we uh, frequency about two posts per week. I was like, Joe throws up two posts on our Facebook page a day. <laughs> plus we have, uh, you know, five uh, uh, podcasts a week. So uh, I think they're, you know, they're talking just about um, – uh, you know, just uh, the Facebook page or, or the the uh, uh, website of BJJ Brick. And it says we have 4,022 Facebook fans. So uh, let's try to get some more. Uh, if you, uh, you know, tell all your friends about us and, you know, let's try to get some more Facebook fans. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Tell them about the pod. To me, the podcast is, is uh, where we where we get together and, and hang out every week. And that's where we want you to – that's where most people find us and uh, – that's how most people connect and, and learn about jujitsu, and it's 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 cool to be on this list because I've been using this this uh, this list for quite a while to find articles because we do an article every week, and sometimes I'm you know it's the day before we're getting ready to do this. I'm like I need to find an article. Go here. I'll scroll down a little bit and hey, let's check this website out and open it up and see what if they have anything written that we could talk about. And it's kind of cool to be represented on that list with everybody else. So we made it, gentlemen. Yep, we, well, <laughs> Top twenty-five. We do a lot of things. We do the uh, Facebook page. We do the web page. Uh, got other social media outlets, YouTube. But the podcast is our brick. 
Oh, I like that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we do best, right? It is, definitely. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think it was but just that's pretty, Yeah, go ahead. That's pretty cool being number 22. But uh, our goal is to uh, just have fun and uh, spread jiu-jitsu to everybody. And if we make it to number one, that'd be cool. But, uh, you know, it's just we just want to spread jiu-jitsu and, uh, you know, get more and more people to train. Yeah, I don't really think that uh, the, the number on – it's kind of like a belt doesn't really mean anything as far as um well it does to joe and i um byron basically is the guy who runs the bjj break podcast he's the one who owns it and joe and i uh you know byron brought us along for the ride but you know just like uh you know football and basketball college football college basketball they have the top 25 every year and one thing that uh joe or byron didn't realize when uh, he gave joe and i a contract it actually says in the contract, if we're ever ranked in the top 25, <laughs> ever in the top 25, Byron and I are getting a raise, or Joe and I get a raise. So, uh, uh, Byron, me and Joe would like to bring that to attention, and uh, we would like to, uh, <laughs> I will double it, to get our paycheck. And one thing about this podcast, like Joe and I always say, we get paid weekly, very weekly, <laughs> W-E-A-K-L-Y. <laughs> but now we're going to be getting twice as much, so I'm stoked. <laughs> me too. Thank you, Byron. Well, yeah, I'll double the week. <laughs> Gary, he was talking about his weak side a week or two ago, and that's a confusing <laughs> sentence. And then it's good to switch to different sides, and maybe maybe someday, Gary, you'll you'll get a good side. Someday, that's that's my goal. But uh, I do the one thing I do have is I leak better on my left side, so uh, I do something. See, I thought okay, now we're bringing the you're bringing it above the waistline. Right now, I look better on the front side than the back side. <laughs> wow. But give me a couple more years. Yeah. I'll catch you up. Or so, a prison I don't remember or you saying it uh, last last week or so. Which side is your good side? Are are you right-handed or left-handed, Gary? Byron, I have all my sides are good side. All his sides are good side. Yep. Okay. At least well, that's what my mom tells me. You got some good sides there, Gary. But if all your sides are good, none of them are actually that great. I'm going to have to go to my safe space. Well, I mentioned that we pull articles from this website uh, from time to time. And it's just a, a nice resource. So go check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes to the to the big list of jujitsu websites. And speaking of which, we have an article this week, guys. It's from John Will's blog. It's Man, what a great resource this blog is. I think it might be the shortest uh, article that we've discussed yet. But like, like Gary said a week or two ago, size don't matter. So uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I, I really like this. In fact, guys, if you don't mind, I'll just read the whole article since it's short enough and then we can talk about it. He starts out with uh, a couple of uh, statements. Just take a single step. Just lose a single kilo. Just save 100 bucks. Just read one page. Just do five push-ups. And then he continues and says, doing just a little is infinitely better than doing nothing. We achieve things by taking that small initial step and then repeating it. Having an all-or-nothing mindset serves only to shackle us. I used to have this mindset myself, and it really held me back. Just do a little. It often leads to a lot. So that's a, that's a short article, but it's so concise and it couldn't be more true. Um, b- being afraid to take that first step, 
holds many people back. Just think about all of the people that have driven by jujitsu gyms and thought I would love to do that and have never stepped on the mat. So I that really like this. <laughs> I think we've all been there, Gary. I think yeah. I think every every one of us. I mean, I I've gone traveling and, and brought gear with me, and then sort of wimp out at the last minute and come up with excuses. I'm busy. I got too much to do. But really, it, it's just that taking that initial step to get through the door. So yeah. I, I like the article. I appreciate him having it on here for us. Yeah, I love the the part he talks about having an all or nothing mindset only shackles us. And he talks about how it holds us back. And and I think about people who want to lose weight. They always want to lose 50 pounds. You never just hear somebody like uh, John talks about just lose a single kilo. And, you know, it's that all or nothing mindset. I'm going to lose 50 pounds. And the first week goes by and they lose four pounds, which is great. Probably more than you should lose in a week. But then they, they don't think it's enough. And, you know, they get down and next thing you know, they're they're done with it where, uh, you know, it's that all or nothing mindset. I got to get to it, uh, you know, as quick as possible and and, you know, just got to lose so much. And and I even think about my buddy Byron here, you know, Byron, just do five push ups. Byron, he couldn't even do a push up over three months ago. And uh, he just started doing one push-up, and he had to start from his knees. But the guy can now do two regular push-ups. And, I mean, he's been doing it for for uh, three months now. And, uh, you know, it just took took him to start, and uh, he's moving up. And uh, I guarantee you within the next year or two, he'll be up to five push-ups. Yeah. I, uh, a time that I actually used this and before I read this was – uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get, compete in a uh, what's it called a relay triathlon, triathlon. Uh, where where I'm going to swim my wife is going to bike and then I'm going to jog I'd say run but I'm going to jog uh, <laughs> and so the swimming part I've never I I talked about this a couple weeks ago or last week but I, could, I swim I can swim I'm fine in the water but to swim a distance is nothing I've done I've always just played in the water you know dunk each other and choke each other and look each other in the water that's what i do in the water but to actually try to go from back and forth or, or you know swim a quarter mile man talk about a tough thing that i wasn't ready for i got in the pool at the y i, I mentioned this before but i couldn't swim 25 meters and i had to swim 400 meters i couldn't i, I was exhausted and so i told myself okay most of this is technique i'm not in that bad of shape have to learn the technique and have, let's just swim 25 meters and then let's just swim 50 meters next the next day and, and just take it at little chunks at a time and now i'm quite comfortable and i'm, I'm confident i can swim the distance and uh, likely i will not drown uh next weekend when i try to do this event <laughs> i'm hoping so <laughs> so i guess i end next weekend if i do drown yeah if we don't have an episode next weekend you know why yep so, Byron, just to back up a minute, uh, when you're doing your choking and your heel hooking and your <laughs> – how long does it usually take for you to get kicked out of the kiddie pool? Yeah, uh, pretty quick, but it's usually so chaotic as far as all the splashing goes uh, that they don't understand that there's, a, there's an adult in the water. And uh, that kind of helps me, you know, get delayed a little bit. But yeah, And the thing is, the thing is, Byron actually swims in spats and a, a no-gi rash guard, you actually think one of those lifeguards is going to have enough guts to kick Byron out? You know, it, it's a tap-out rash guard. They're not going to mess with that guy. Oh, I yeah. mean, the guy does... I mean, not only does the guy dress like that, he does two push-ups. <laughs> and, and the water around me is more yellow than any of the other yellow water in the whole pool. 
Leakage. <laughs> leakage. Man, I throw this, this little joke about leakage in at the beginning, and Gary has been just been running with it the whole episode. That's been great. Jogging, Byron. Jogging. Jogging. If you run, you might leak a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but and yeah. then I'd slip. <laughs> well, and I'd break an ankle. And then who knows? I could fall on my eyebrow and have a little leakage of blood right there. So you never know. Man. I feel like we've deviated slightly from the article. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Gary, leak a little bit Article's less. Great. You know, each yeah. time. Yeah, definitely. Just take that first step. That's all we have to do. And you know, it's don't have that all or nothing attitude. Just go in, take that first step. Just lose that one pound. Just you know, do those five push-ups. Just uh, walk into that jujitsu gym the first time, and uh, just go from there. Yeah, the, get the a weight bit better every time. The weight loss one. I think we could dig a little deeper in that he's like just lose a, a kilo um you know it could be just eat healthy right now it could a big one for me is just shop healthy right now like i'm at the store buy healthy food right now and then that have a like a trickle down effect as far as the meals i prepare for myself later on are more healthy if i'm able to get myself to shop healthy right now and yeah i'll buy junk food next time but right now i'm gonna buy healthy like, food i always like the people it's like hey i'm gonna uh lose weight uh, starting on the first let's just start today yeah you know it's it's monday i'm going to start next sunday let's just start today and then they they you're, do you're exactly that farther what, ahead what john's saying is they go like 110 percent on the first and by the third they're done yeah you know like just do a little steps yeah. you, you, you'll yeah. get there have a healthier breakfast have a healthy lunch um have your normal dinner and then after a while it fades into a more healthy dinner and it gets it's easier it's a more long-term attainable thing if you could change your lifestyle it takes about a month or so to make an actual change in your habit man such a little article that has uh, sparked a good conversation gentlemen yeah it's a great article definitely check out uh, John Will's uh, blog we have a link to it on the show notes but there's so much good stuff on there we, we've pulled stuff from John Link's blog numerous times on here and uh, also we've had him on the show as Byron said earlier, we've had 253 episodes. So we've had a lot of people on the show. <laughs> we've but, had uh, one John Will. Yeah, John Will's a legend. Definitely check him out. I'd like to thank a couple of legends here. Uh, Trip, yeah, Caleb, you're and welcome, Rob. Byron. Oh. <laughs> Good try, Gary. Um, what Trip, Caleb, and Rob are doing is they're Patreon supporters. And they heard the show, most likely, and said, hey, I want to help these guys out and help them do the best possible podcast they can make and, and keep this show going strong. And we are looking to make this a better show, and we're also wanting to make this more stable. And uh, what you could do is donate a dollar per episode on Patreon, or even a few people do even more, which is phenomenal. And we'll send you out a 5-inch BJJ Brick Gee Patch, a BJJ Brick sticker, your... Uh, cordially invited to join the the facebook group the private facebook group and you gotta uh send me an email at bjbrick at gmail.com if you want to join that and you're a patreon supporter that way i could send me a link to your facebook page i'll add you that way and for a limited time only we still have a few of those pictures left of gary uh that he's (laughs) autographed uh that he famously had to sign in episode 250 (laughs) (laughs) a few of those that he's and gary's not a guy who would uh, promote himself in such a fashion that's why it's funny. <laughs> I'll give it to you guys. Hey, watch our YouTube episode and uh, 
they they actually spring that on me that they've made some postcards with my picture on it, and uh, I have to give it to them. That was a pretty good uh, pretty good joke. Yep, and you even showed them to your, to your wife, didn't you, or your, some of your family members? Yeah, I actually asked if I could uh, take a couple for myself to show them to my wife, and uh, she actually sent a picture to my dad, and he thought that was cool, which uh, kind of ridiculous, but uh, okay. That's how you know you're hey, cool, Gary. Hey, Gary. Gary. Yes, Joe. GQ magazine called. <laughs> they definitely <laughs> they, don't want me. <laughs> they said no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> they said to stop sitting in submissions. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> They're like, and how come these pictures are wet? Looks like a little leakage. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to our audio book this week that uh, is secretly in the works at the BJ Brick Podcast Studio. And it could be all of us. Um, we're really teamed up with Gary here mostly. <laughs> He's writing Leaky Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, and other surprises you'll find on the mat. And it's just a collection of odd stories and a little bit of strategy. Gary, Joe, you know, this has been a, quite the the team effort of all of us. But uh, the chapters on uh, disguising your leaks and blaming them on other things have really helped me just a lot on the mat. Well, you know, uh, like you said, disguising your, your leaks... Um, you know, that's definitely one thing you want to do because it's it can get pretty embarrassing and you can be the, the butt, uh, no pun intended, of all the jokes there. So one thing I do, and I've been doing this for a long time, is I always bring a big, clear gallon, you know, the, the big milk jugs, but I rinse it out and I fill it with lemonade, you know, lemonade. And uh, I bring that to every class. And every time True. there's a leakage on the, uh, the mat, I just pretend like some of my lemonade spilled. Even if I haven't had the lemonade jug on the mat, people think that maybe he had it on the mat. They don't know. So um, I just kind of always blame it on, uh, you know, I spilled some lemonade. And uh, what I do to make it even more realistic is I scoop it up into a cup and I'll drink it at that point. (laughs) That way they have no clue that it really was not lemonade. And uh, it's a good way to hide it. And Joe is our more, I guess, fashion forward uh, person with the podcast, and he's really taken it upon himself. He, you see, you know, geese in all different shapes and colors and designs. I've never seen anybody but Joe wear a yellow gee, and uh, it's it, it's it didn't to start sense. out yellow. No, it didn't start out yellow. <laughs> yeah, you guys think it's tie dyed, but that's not exactly how things came into play. <laughs> um, yellow in the front, brown in the back. So I got I got I got it all covered. <laughs> Oh man! But, but this will but, be yeah. Go ahead, Gary. Yeah, another thing is uh, what I have done. Also, is we started a new gi, not just the the color Joe was talking about, but there's a super absorbent gi, and basically it's made out of like paper towel material. And even what happens if you do leakage on the mat, you just shrimp over. And uh, I mean, it it'll take up a big spill. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of. Uh, I mean, the spill, it, it takes up so much spill that when you, you shrimp over it, it's totally clean. And on top of that, it cleans the match at the same time. But this material is such a pri- pri- pro, such a pri- I can't even say the damn word. You know what I'm talking about, Byron? And this part of the episode <laughs> has been brought to you by Bounty, the quicker picker up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this material is, you know, we have patented it. But we're getting a lot of companies like Exxon actually wants to buy our material. So if they have any oil spills, I mean, that's how good this stuff is worked. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, personally, I think I might make a lot of money with it. But, uh, you know, like Joe said, we, you, we, you know, Bounty definitely helped us out with it. The quicker picker upper. Yeah. If you're not going to pick somebody up and, and, and finish your takedown, you might as well pick up some liquid with Bounty. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But look uh, for the link in the show notes to Bounty, and that's how you know that what we're talking about is real. <laughs> <laughs> and next week, listen to our podcast about how Bounty is suing us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it, it, we didn't really introduce that segment. That's our fake audiobook that uh, we like to work on at the end of the show, just kind of cut loose and have a good time and not cut loose too much, right, Gary and Joe? <laughs> I've already been cutting loose all day, <laughs> like you were in different rooms. <laughs> Uh, Gary talked about next week we're getting sued. That might happen if I don't drown first. But if that doesn't happen, if I don't drown and we don't get sued by Bounty, we have Tyson Kilby. Uh, He is a uh, lieutenant with the sheriff's office, and he's written a book called Fundamental Handgun Mastery. Uh, Tyson is also a jiu-jitsu guy. He is a brown belt, and uh, so we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, firearms and and safety with that. We talk a lot about jiu-jitsu. And uh, some of his experience in, in you know, just doing law enforcement is always an interesting topic to me. And, and uh, yeah, just a great conversation that's coming at you next week. Uh, had a good time this week, guys, and, uh, and looking forward to next week. Definitely looking forward to next week. And uh, Byron, uh, remember, uh, floaties. Floaties is a key word. You know, I hope you don't drown because uh, Joe and I want to double our weekly paycheck. <laughs> All right, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Train hard, train smart, get better. We'll see you on the mats. Leak less. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs>